Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts As the UK lags on testing, other countries race ahead. Germany is currently carrying out so many coronavirus tests, no one knows the real number. A change of tone from Donald Trump. This is not the flu. It's vicious. And advice on how to speak to children about the crisis. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis. Just 2,000 frontline NHS staff have been tested for coronavirus, despite up to one in four being off work with suspected symptoms in some areas of the country. Downing Street confirmed the figures as it reiterated calls for NHS Trust to use any spare testing capacity on staff. The government's under pressure to ramp up testing. Almost 13,000 tests can now be carried out every day, but only 8,500 were taken on Monday. It comes as 563 more people died in the UK, bringing the death toll to over 2,000. Today, the Business Secretary Alok Sharma denied allegations that government provisions of testing and protective equipment had been too slow. Increasing testing capacity is absolutely the government's top priority. Uh, We're now at 10,000 tests uh, a day. Uh, We're rolling out additional networks of labs and testing sites. And in terms of PHE, of the last two weeks, 390 million products have been distributed. Uh, And of course, we will continue to do more Professor Yvonne Doyle, Medical Director at Public Health England, today said the country intends to move from thousands of tests to hundreds of thousands within weeks. One country that has got a grip on testing is Germany. It's currently carrying out so many tests that no one knows the real number. The official estimate is half a million a week. But since only positive results have to be reported to authorities, the true number could be even higher. Justin Hugler is The Telegraph's Berlin correspondent. I asked him how the country managed to get ahead so quickly. Part of the reason Germany has been able to get ahead of countries like the UK is its decentralised health system. Here, ordinary GPs can order the tests without referring patients to hospital, and samples are analysed at a network of public and private labs across the country. Germany was one of the first countries in Europe to set up drive-through testing centres, and some animating labs more used to working with vets are now being switched over to meet the growing demand. But Germany is also ahead because it started planning earlier. It developed its own coronavirus test in the middle of January, 
while other countries were still dragging their feet. It was able to get the test off the ground quickly because doctors and academics worked with the private sector instead of waiting for the government to act. Donald Trump has warned Americans to brace for a very painful few weeks after the United States registered its deadliest 24 hours of the crisis. At least 100,000 people in America will die from the virus, even with the current restrictions in place, according to White House projections. It's the first time senior U.S. officials have outlined the country's COVID-19 curve. The Telegraph's U.S. editor, Ben Riley Smith, says the president's most recent address to the country registered a change of tone. Two things really stood out from Donald Trump's press conference last night. The first, obviously, was the statistics. This was the first time the White House had ever laid out in detail their projection for where America's COVID-19 curve is going. And it was utterly grim, to be honest. They said, even with the restrictions in place, if they were universally adhered to between 100,000 and 240,000 people in America were going to die of coronavirus. Just beginning to get your head around that statistic is mind-boggling, really. In America right now, as I speak, around 4,000 people have died from the virus. In the world as a whole, 44,000 people have died from the virus. So the White House is now saying, at best, double the number of total worldwide deaths will be seen in America from the virus. And it could be a lot worse than that. The second thing was Trump's tone. He was very downbeat, very sombre, very serious. He talked about a very, very painful period to come, a hell of a bad two weeks, saying we'll see things like we haven't seen before. And he said hospitals would be looking like war zones. And in particular, he told an anecdote that he's told a few times in recent days, a personal link to the virus. When you send a friend to the hospital and you call up to find out how is he doing, it happened to me. And you call up the next day, how's he doing? And he's in a coma? This is not the flu. And Trump said, it's not like the flu. It's vicious, which is clearly very different to where he was a month ago. He's repeatedly compared coronavirus to the flu, and he was trying to downplay the seriousness or at least provide some reassurance to America. But it's also different to where he was a week ago when Trump was repeatedly talking about his desire to reopen the economy, saying you can't just shut down the whole country. He was talking about easing nationwide restrictions by Easter, April 12th. Well, that has now gone out the window. And in that press conference, which lasted more than two hours, Trump was sober, serious and stony-faced. And it felt like the moment that the enormity of what he is now facing as president has really struck home. the sound of workers being sprayed with a dangerous chemical disinfectant in Uttar Pradesh in India, a video circulating on social media causing outrage. It's the precaution they're forced to take before starting a day's work. Parts of the world's second most populous country are struggling to adhere to the social distancing regulations. A week after Narendra Modi ordered the largest national lockdown the planet's ever seen, the three-week-long precautions remain an unaffordable luxury for tens of millions of labourers working hand-to-mouth. But the imperative to work isn't the only problem. The Telegraph's Joe Wallen sent me this report from New Delhi. In India, the announcement of a lockdown sparked a mass exodus of migrant workers who rushed back home to their villages. 
But beyond these powerful images of packed transport hubs lies the devastating reality of a pandemic in the developing world. Applying a nationwide quarantine and social distancing guidelines here in India will prove far more difficult than in developed countries. That's because around 40% of the entire urban population lives in slums. The population density is far greater than even the busiest capitals of Western countries. What's worse, most don't have access to a source of clean running water in their homes, meaning that they have to travel every day to reach a communal tap or use a public toilet. The Indian government announced a $22 billion aid package, but this will only help a minority of poor Indians, and disruption to the fragile food supply chain here is already causing shortages. A weak healthcare system is the other main concern. Developing countries have some of the lowest numbers of ICU beds per capita in the world, while the United States provides 33 ICU beds per 100,000 people, India only has 2.3. And the scale of the spread is hard to predict. The current number of those infected or killed by coronavirus in India is still low relative to some European countries. But the shortage of tests means the real number is likely to be much, much higher, and it is still climbing. With roughly 80% of the world's population living in developing countries, where disease can thrive, COVID-19 is not just a threat, it's an inevitability. And as long as the virus is spreading, it could rebound to the rest of the world. As if we didn't all have enough to deal with at the moment, coronavirus has become the number one hook used by fraudsters to extort members of the public. According to Action Fraud, scammers stole £1.5 million in the UK from virus-related fraud in March alone. With criminals adopting more complex methods of deceit, how can you keep yourself safe? The Telegraph's consumer champion, Katie Morley, shares her top tips. My number one piece of advice is be wary of any texts you receive. The government sent out one legitimate text message telling people that they must stay at home, but that's it. Ignore any texts purporting to be from HMRC and any texts about a government payment. They're scams. Number two, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. I've seen a fake ASDA voucher during the rounds and cold calls about COVID testing for a fee. Ignore them. They're scams. And number three is never give out your financial information, including your PIN. This applies to anyone who knocks on the door or who phones you, even if you think you can trust them. Remember, your bank will never ask for your PIN. After the tragic news that a 13-year-old boy from South London with no apparent underlying health conditions had died with the virus, I received a spate of emails from parents. The child, who suffered from a cardiac arrest, was admitted to hospital the previous day. Many of you, Jen, Rahman, Christopher, wanted to know how to talk to children about such tragedies and the situation more widely. It's by no means an easy conversation to have, so I asked our resident psychologist, Linda Blair, for her advice. It's tremendously upsetting when any child dies. Uh, And I think what's made it so extra terrible right now is that we didn't think children died from coronavirus. If you look carefully at the statistics, uh, that isn't entirely the case. But it is true that very few do. And I think what happens for all adults, but especially parents, is your immediate reaction is, oh, my gosh, I've got to protect my child, which is only natural. The problem is that you're assuming your child is thinking about the same things you are. They may not be. So rather than introducing a topic, which they may not be worried about right now, it's much better 
to wait until they ask you if they do. We're lucky right now in, in one sense in that we're together so much. There'll be lots of opportunities for that, cooking together or something like that. They're likely to raise the topic. And then what they want you to tell them is that you're able to cope that you're dealing with this changing situation, that's much more important to them than any statistics. The one other thing I would suggest is that you listen to the news together if you do choose to have your children listen to the news, to limit it and to do it at set times. That also provides an opportunity for the child to ask you questions. If you have a question you'd like one of our journalists or experts to answer, maybe you want to know more about the government's policy on testing, or perhaps you're struggling to work from home and just want some advice, send me an email or a voice note. The address is coronaviruspodcast at telegraph.co.uk. Our global health security team, led by Paul Nuki, who regular listeners will have heard on this podcast, will also be running a live Q&A on the Telegraph website at 1pm on Thursday, and I'll put details of how to join that in the show notes to this episode. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis and I'll be back on Thursday evening with another update. In these unsettling times, we're working harder than ever to ensure that you feel informed, optimistic and up to date on all the issues you care about. You can stay up to date with all of The Telegraph's news, analysis and advice for free for the first 30 days and for just £3 a week after that. Go to telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Stamps.com. Code program.